tuitū he kāinga, whatu ngaro ngaro he tangata. Ete we know my hooky my ano kitahika kum maraya rakrakua ho. Welcome back to Te Ahika, the Radio New Zealand Weekly Māori Features Programme. E Haere Ake Nei, it's a bustling metropolis of nearly 1.3 million, termed the Polynesian capital of the world, bursting at its seams, heaving with traffic, and what others say, totally oblivious to anything other than itself. This week we're focusing on Tamaki Makaurau, the land of a thousand lovers, Auckland, and one of its areas that is deemed the wealthiest, Orake. Heard of Apihai Tikawo? Well, unless you're as Fano, chances are you're blissfully unaware that largely due to the generosity of the Ngāti Whātua Rangatira, Auckland was established. That's right, Itiwi, in 1840, yep, it's the same year Tiriti o Waitangi was signed, Apihai Tikawo entered into an agreement with Governor Hobson providing 3,000 acres upon which Auckland grew. Now, this wasn't such a big deal as Ngāti Whātua at the time were the major landholders of the area with a supporting population to boot, and it was pretty standard for Rangatira to gift whenua for different purposes, be it for churches, school or defence. Just think about the Raglan Golf Course. And Ngāti Whātua had always made it clear that their papakainga, the 700-acre Orake block, was not to be sold. And as far as they were concerned, safe for themselves and future generations... Right? Ah, uh, wrong. Through the workings of various legislature, the 700-acre block slowly whittled away until 1898 when only 40 acres remained at Okahu Bay. And Nazi Fatua fought and battled their way through, and we're talking generations here to hold on to their whenua. This week's programme focuses on Takaparafo, Bastion Point, Orake, The Point and the resistance waged by Ngāti Whātua, culminating in an occupation that began on the 6th of January 1977 and ended 507 days later on the 25th of May 1978. But let them come and try in a big bus up here. We'll have so many people on Bastion Point. We want that flag to fly. We want that flag to fly. We want this house to stand because... We start in 1944, where Patu Clark describes her childhood at Okahu Bay and the impact of moving from the Papagainga under duress to what were to be the new homes in Kitemuana Street. So the site of all these new houses up on the Kitemuana Street became ugly to us. What we thought was going to be fabulous became ugly because of the effect it had on our people were burning our old houses. Better known these days as a musician with Unity Pacific, Tingi Ness relives the day he was dragged off, and he's got the photos to prove it, Takaparafo over 30 years ago. It was like being involved in a battle or a war because uh, the police and the army were there in numbers and we were a pretty ragtag uh, bunch of people um, was just all huddled together outside the, the Whareanui and let them take us. Then Patu's daughter, Precious Clark, joins us from her base in London, whose conception, birth and life has been shaped by the legacy of Takaparafo. I was conceived during the occupation of Bastion Point. The story goes that my grandfather would call me Precious while I was in the womb. 
17 days after I was born, my cousin Joanne, who was also up at the occupation, unfortunately she died in a fire at Sebastian Point. And so I was given the name Precious Joanne in her memory. And we end with a whakatauki that encompasses the battles faced by Ngāti Whātua and many iwi as voiced by Kiri Rātima, descendant of a rangatira, mokomoko from Te Whakatōhia. One of 15 children to Piu Piu and Iruini Hawk, Patricia Precious Promise Nawati Hawk, Patu Clark, nor Nati Fatua, describes her childhood in the Okahu Papakainga that had been the only home she knew until she was 10 years old. Yet it was an event three years earlier that made her distinctly aware of the dangers her people faced. I'll take you back to when I was seven years old because something happened down there that was. Um something to do with what was leading up to what was happening. There was Joe, Joe, my brother, and my older brother, Ed, myself, and Grant. And I was seven at the time, and we'd been down the marae for there were meetings and, about what was happening with our land and everything. And being children, we were there to play. You know, and on our way home, it was quite dark, and there was all these stars in the sky... When we left our home, which was outside the marae, was outside the marae, when we left home, they had put up these barbed wire fences. Who's they? The council, the land um, the council had put up these barbed wire fences. Now, our fathers used to just pull them down. So on our way down to the Farihui, during the day, they were down. And coming back in the night, I remember it was a beautiful star-filled sky, and in those days you had, um, you know, shooting stars all over the place. And I remember thinking I would take the shortcut home and because the fence was down, and I ran, and I ran right into the fence, into the barbed wire, which ended up me having 36 stitches in my face. But... Of course, it was a terrible time for Mum and Dad because all they could see was me hanging there with all this blood streaming down. And and I'll be honest, I never felt any pain. I didn't feel anything. All I knew is that the stars and the the stars were shining so brightly, and I was counting all the shooting stars. <laughs> and it was a um, a horrible time for my parents and my brothers. And so, what year was this, Patu? So I would have been. So that was 19, take it away from 51. Oh, 1944. Why were there barbed wire fences around the whenua? Well, at that time, being kids, we didn't know what was going on. We knew that people were sort of, uh, you know, being being made landless and there was uh, people supposedly selling land or coerced into selling land. To us as kids, it just meant that, um, you know, like our grandmother used to say, such and such as sold some land because they've got a car <laughs> on the marae or wearing these furs, you know, like, um, what do you call them? It was, it was horrible. Prior to that, you know, like with the searage going in, our kaimoana became a danger to us. We had typhoid epidemics. Joe nearly lost his life in that. Yeah, there was a typhoid epidemic eating all our kaimana. I mean, there would have been only about 
three flush toilets on our marae. The rest of the kaka that was going through the sewage wasn't ours. And um, that was awful. So we lost our kaimoana. We lost a lot of things. Because they considered us an eyesore. Because the queen was coming. It was a sad time. Especially for our parents and our kaumata. It was a really, really... It was sort of like darkness. You know, there was a darkness over the marae. And it was heavy and laden and... It was really sad. Some of us cried because everyone else was crying. And you could feel the emotion of our people. When we saw our house being burnt and Uncle Tommy was still sitting in his house. And our Komatua didn't want to leave. They cried and wailed and they... I think one of my nanny... Um, died not long after she went up the hill. Nanikati, all of us kids, it was a heavy time. I'll never forget it. I can see it now. You know, sort of standing there, sort of uh, wondering what was going on and why. So the sight of all these new houses up on the Kitawana Street became ugly to us. What we thought was going to be fabulous became ugly because the, the effect it had on our people were burning our old houses. You know, they were warm houses. Remember one of my nannies used to have the mud floor and it was like, it was so pristine. She was the midwife, Nani Rongo. She delivered my sister Dawny at home. And her name is Rungo. And her house was just less than... We used to love going into the houses because they were so warm. And I mean, some of our, our houses leaked. We used to have musical musical nights because we'd put the we'd put the tins underneath a leak and you'd hear, you'd hear ding, 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 ding. And you know when to fill it up because it'd go ding, bong, bong. <laughs> so... I loved it down the marae. And I was so sad. We were all sad. But to us as kids at that time, we sort of looking towards the future and thinking, you know, get to have your own room and get to just switch on the lights. I remember when we did move up, a lot of us had our power cut off because we used to leave our lights on. Because then it became uh, to us that we had to pay bills. We never paid bills before. <laughs> We used to leave the lights on and have a bath about three times a day. And then you had all this and then you got the bills and hello. And, you know, some of us had our power cut off. We had quite a um, social life amongst all of us up there on the, you know, up in Kittenwana Street. There's social life. And uh, we had our action groups and we entertained and the community centre was part and parcel of us. So we had a lot, a lot to do with music, and our parents were quite strict. Our parents were very strict on us. 
although our dad used to wish he'd kick us up the arse because he used to have us standing there for two hours giving us a lecture. Get it over and done with. Which did would kick us up the ass <laughs> instead of talking, 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 standing there hopping on one foot to the other. <laughs> and it was usually because we didn't catch the last bus home, and of course they used to come down and look for us. And the dogs preceded them, you know, because we'd end up walking along the waterfront. So we were the only the whole all of us would be in trouble because we'd miss the last bus. <laughs> We were singing along the waterfront, and our dogs would precede them in their whistles. Patsu, the whare that was down at the at Okahu Bay, what happened to it? That was burnt down. We had so many tangis and so many weddings and so many different... I think if you looked in the old archives, you'll realise it was just a simple whare. It didn't wasn't elaborately carved. It just had this one little carving in the middle. It wasn't carved inside. It was just a simple fuddy, and yet it um, hosted. Like I remember, Waikato was always there. Tainui, my grandmother would take. I was never allowed to go with her. I could only go to the gardens with her, but when she went on the hikoi, you know, down to the pokais and stuff, she always took Dina, my cousin, Tamariki. And um, maybe to get her out and about. But um, that was sad, that, because it was, you know, they built it with just an old old big building like a big hall and then they added on the dining room and we used to love it all us kids you know setting the tables for a big hui and stuff and, and there was so much activity on our marae lots of activity this is all exciting when your whānau ended up uh, occupying Takaparafo Well, I was actually at home here, sitting here watching the news. The barn and with my family and was sitting here watching the news. And I look and I thought, well, well, what is Hohepa doing with the tent? <laughs> he appears on TV. What's he doing with the tent up, up at the hill? Oh, hello. Oh, well, you know, so so we're listening, listening to Hohepa. So we just packed our gears and went up. And um, all these land issues were coming about, and from there it started. And Joe, Joe, and Joe had this vision, and he is he is a man of vision, and he sees things ahead of. He's. And he just gets these things in his heart, you know, like which stems from when we were down on the Papakainga. Stems from there and talking to Nanny and things and about the land and what it means. And, and Joe saw all these 
discrepancies and everything to do with Māori and their land. And he took it on board because we're having the same problems. I mean, where there was a possibility we're going to be kicked off off there as well. So that, that was the beginning. That was always a threat. Ever since when we moved up, it was always a threat of our people being kicked out. Some of our people were even were evicted, you know, because of bloody beds. What we thought was ours wasn't ours. It still belonged to somebody else. Um, what we had left was our was uh, Urupa and uh, there was a sense of loss and you know it, sort of our community was in a tither and, and Joe, Joe's timing was perfect because all these things were happening and and he'd been down in Wellington and done quite a bit of um, you know like what do you call it not a thesis he was into examining everything and looking at things and reading and finding out. And he came back with a mission in his heart and and there were so many people who supported, supported us. Now, what do you think the events of May the 25th, 1978, how do you think that shaped Aotearoa from your perspective as mana whenua? Well, I I think it opened I think it opened the floodgates. I think it had opened a way for all Maori who had suffered from I'll say it simply from the this is Crown land trespassers will be prosecuted signs all over the place. I can only say it like that. If if there was a, how many signs did you used to see? This is Crown land and trespassers will be prosecuted. Oh, we still see them. Right. Right, so, you know, I mean, I don't think I'd... I think that says it all, so it's up to yourself to look where you are, and I think Joseph opened... Joe opened the floodgates to everybody to have a look at their own issues. And um, that's my impression of of how... what happened afterwards. What about for your own people, for Nazi Fatima? Well, for our own people, we seem to have gone long in leaps and bounds. We have, um, you know, we have a clinic. We have a, our own our own um, health clinic. The Komata have have their own Komata houses. Our young people are building up there now. There are quite a lot of houses being built as we speak. And there's all sorts of things planned. Um, my sisters and my sisters and brothers and my nephews are all involved with the planting around the Fenua, which is in process now as we speak, and it looks lovely. Our meeting house, we the fare is well used in our dining room. We just had a 21st last week, so all our people seem to have gotten together and there although there was some that sat on the fence they've also come to understand that it was for all of us that Joe stood up there wasn't to say who was sitting on the fence and who was abusing us but to say it was for all of us and our mukupuna are benefiting from what he did I'm so pleased he got 
a member of New Zealand medal, so he was sort of recognised, you know, in the paper recently. Koe, uh, Patricia Precious from Ngāwati Hawk. I'm from Ngāti Whātua Ōrākei. My parents are Pipiu Rihi Hawk, and my dad is Iruini Parata Hawk. Did you look up into the sky on Thursday night, early Friday morning, and see Matariki? There are a number of events taking place over Matariki, which is usually deemed to be the month of June or Pipiri. Here's one. Next Friday, a new publishing house, Taramia, is entering the publishing arena at Puke Kohe. Go to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika, and there's some details there about Taramia. And there's nothing like getting your hands dirty, eh? Yesterday, I was helping replant a riverbank. The night before, at a performance of Here Reo Aroha, the Māori contribution to the honouring theatre extravaganza soon to hit theatres in Rotorua in Manukau City in Auckland. Um, the first piece uh, is Annie May's Movement uh, by Yvette Nolan. She is the artistic director of Native Earth and a playwright, and she also directed the play. Uh, this piece is a, hist- oh, I'm going to say this in inverted commas, a historical piece. Um, it looks at the uh, death of um, Annie May, who was the first uh, female warrior for the American Indian, Indian movement, movement, AIM movement, yeah, yep. in the 1970s, yep. and uh, she was found. Um, the initial autopsy um, found dead. Uh, the initial autopsy said that she uh, had died of exposure, and then they did a second um, autopsy <laughs> and found that she actually died of a bullet in the head. You know, how you can get those confused, I'm not too sure. Amanda Hiriaka, the festival director, will be on the programme next week. As a young fella, Tingi Ness was a member of the Polynesian Panthers, a group modelling themselves on the Black Panther movement in America. Today, he fronts reggae group Unity Pacific. May the 25th, 1978, he was one of the 222 protesters arrested at Takaparafo. Uh, kia ora. Uh, my name is Tingilo Ness, and um, I'm a New Zealand, uh, New Zealand-born Pacific Islander. Tingi, um, how did you get involved with uh, Takaparafo? Um, I belong to a political activist group called the Polynesian Panthers, and one day uh, we were uh, asked to go up and um, occupy the land at uh, Takaparafo. So the occupation lasted for 507 days. Yes. Round about what time did you end up going on there? Um, I think I went up to like 250th day, sort of halfway through, Um, and then on and off towards the end, um, until the last day where I got arrested. And what was the climate like in Palmaki Makoto around that time, Tingi, society-wise? Okay. Um, the spirit on the, the land occupied was pretty um, communal, <laughs> uh, happy. Um, everybody knew that, that why they were there. Um, that was to stop the land being uh, divided and sold. Um, 
underneath under the the Ngati out of the Ngati Fatua position. Um, I would say it was generally a happy uh, um, experience, uh, apart from the days when certain things happened, like the end of uh, um, the occupation, um, and a few other times. You know, when when things got a bit um, heated, or uh, especially around the time when Joanie Hawke um, died. And who were the things getting heated between? Um, occasionally, the, the 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 people within the um, occupation ground itself. Um, some people had uh, different kinds of strategies to put forward, and it was uh, uh, um, debated heatedly until the right solution um, came about. So it was those kind of heated moments. Yeah. Now, had that been your first contact with things Māori? No, the the first one, the first big one for me would have been um, in my primary school uh, days when one of my Māori friends um, died. He he got killed in a car crash, and um, all of us island boys from the school went around to his house, and that was the first time I heard uh, Māori uh, singing at a tangi. Right. Yeah, that was the first tangi that I had attended. I suppose I would have been about eight or nine, but it stayed in my mind, you know. Um, And then later um, was the land march in 1975. That would have been, you know, the big one for me. Now, there was a tikana that was utilised on Takaparafo, wasn't there? It wasn't like any old, you know, anyone can roll on up and, and crash there. Yep, that's right. Um, there was security on the gates, and um, there were signs put up. After a, a little while, um, I think when I said that I was there, sort of halfway through, that that was when I went actually went up to stay. But when it first started out, um, the Panthers were asked and were involved. So our goings up there were were like um, you know day day type um, visits either to, to just go there and support and um, put our bodies up there or to go up and take food or to go up and visit um, 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 the the occupiers that were already there. Um, and, um, you know, going up on, on, on towards the end um, there um, to, to actually stay there, you know, sleep there. But I was working, a lot of us were working, so in the evenings we'd go up after work that kind of thing. Whether you leave peacefully and with dignity, or whether you are forcibly removed, is a decision for you to make. Those of you who are willing to leave are immediately to make your way to the gate facing the Oraki Marae. So if you could describe the the last day. Okay. Um, very... Um, intimidating, very, very scary. We we didn't know uh, what was going to happen. We knew we were um, bound to be arrested. Um, we didn't know, didn't really know what to expect. A bit apprehensive, um, but we all uh, encouraged one another and linked arms, um, you know, to, to, to strengthen our stay there. It was like being involved in a battle or a war because uh, the police and the army were there in numbers and 
we were a pretty ragtaggle uh, bunch of people. Um, it was just all huddled together outside the, the Whare Nui and let them take us. And so when did you get arrested? Um, after uh, people started getting um, carried off, dragged off and, and led off, um, we were still linking arms until uh, two or three, I think, policemen finally come up to me and um, said that if I didn't move, um, I'd be arrested. So I didn't move, and then they just uplifted me um, um, from from there and linked our arms and, um, you know, forcibly uh, dragged me away. So during this time you weren't putting up any resistance? Um, the feeling was there for, for, you know, to fight them, but the the overall um, packet, you know, was was put on us, so that we knew um, no trouble, right? Um, because that would have been detrimental to our to the cause. Yeah. And what was the feeling at this stage when people are getting dragged off the mud eye? Um, quite mixed emotions, really: um, anger, um, fear. Um, you know, an outright rage that this was unjust. Um, and with the haka and the chanting starting to happen as they were carrying us uh, off until we got into the buses, uh, we, put, we were put on the buses, forced on the buses, then, the, then um, you know, the adrenaline really kicked in and we started chanting and, um, you know, uh, uh, screaming... Um, Defiance. Um, out of the buses and um, you know, thrusting our clenched fists out the windows and things like that, and calling to to um, the other people who were still outside and being carried off to you know be strong. So these are the buses that the police had brought along to Takaparafo to cart away people? Yes, yes. There must have been about three, four bus buses um, at one time and um, the vans and uh, the police vans and that, of course. Um, but it's sort of like um, like a lot of the other... Uh, uh, demonstrations and um, you know confrontations that that I've been involved in it was similar to a lot of those um, those ones. So once you were in the buses, what happened then? Well, um, we had to wait in the buses until um, they were full. Um, so we had a lot of time to to chant and, you know, yell out from through the windows. Um, but there, there was no uh, other um, things we could do. Uh, we, we were held in the buses until we were taken down to Central to be um, processed. And that was the usual processing procedure? Yep. I think um, on the way to the buses and just outside the buses, before they loaded us in there, um, they gave us pieces of paper um, declaring that we were trespassing and um, we we were to be arrested if we didn't remove ourselves. 
this was on pieces of paper and I still kept my piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you get taken down to the police station and and the police station just must have been heaving with people. Oh, it, it was chocker. It was full. Um, we were all agitated, of course, in screaming abuse and, um, you know, just, just being... Uh, uh, all the adrenaline rushes and things like that, you know, we were pretty agitated, um, you know, uh, uh, chanting slogans and, and things like that. Most of the protesters appear stunned by what has happened and many are unsure of police charges and bail. One protester's told me that he's been charged with trespass, but most of the other protesters are unwilling to talk about their experiences without permission from their leaders. Too much that's already been said has been twisted about, says one protester. A European woman who says she's been a long-standing supporter of the Bastien Point protest is one of several drivers ferrying the protesters back to the Oraki Marae adjoining Bastien Point. There they'll see the awful remains of their lives on the point, she says. Today I'm not proud of being a Pākehā. Outside Auckland Central Police Station, this is David Steenson. Well, it's either a choice. You, you either get forced and beaten or you just comply with um, what the police uh, were saying at the time. And that's like, you know, getting fingerprinted finger by finger and then palm print and then stand and take a photo and give your name and all that kind of thing. So all that kind of formality you just go along with. Mm. Um, but when, when there's about 30 people in line waiting to be um, processed like that, of course there's going to be a lot of... Um, yelling and loud voices and, you know, people were uncomfortable and things like that. And the police also, um, you know, uh, 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 trying to, to um, control things. But a lot of us were, were quite um, rowdy and agitated by then, full on, you know, um, chanting uh, 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 the haka, do, doing that, um, you know, and shouting out um, slogans. Um, and then how did that day end, Tingi? Um, how did that end for you? Well, was um, let out of the um, central um, and given dates when, when to appear in court and things like that. But I think um, those of us that could went back up there to the point um, to, to, to see what, uh, you know, where everybody was going to go to from there. Um, as well as that, there, there were people outside Central. Um, Organising was being done really quick um, as to where we, where we would go uh, from there, you know, like how we were going to do the court um, appearances and things like that. Um, I can't, can't quite remember what actually happened um, that evening, um, but I do know that at some stage we went back up to the point and um, it was told us that, uh, you know, it was... We weren't allowed on there anymore. Who was telling you that? Um, I think they had police uh, uh, standing, you know, guard at, at what used to be the the um, gates, you know, to onto the land that we'd occupied. Mm. Yeah. And then you went and and then there were court cases. Yes, um, it all became a mishmash of of of, of um, things. Then um, it was like day day one in court and then the next day and then the next day um, and it was obvious that um, the, the, the court was too small um, for the amount of people that 
wanted to get in to hear the court cases and for those of us that were um, charged. Um, the court cases were... The, the buildings itself was just full, full of people protesting, um, supporters, um, media and police and, and that, of course. Um, but it was pretty full so that when a magistrate did come in and um, court rise and all that kind of thing, then immediately the hackers began. The police would uh, stand like in a ring around the, the judge um, and then he'd leave and everybody would cheer in, in victory saying, you know, we've um, if they want to carry that on, then we'll carry on as well and disrupt totally disrupt the um, the court system because we knew that as well as our court cases, it was holding all the other uh, um, court cases of other people as well, not only just us protesters. So the shacks, tents and caravans have gone, the meeting house has been demolished, and the protesters have gone, for the moment at least. All that remains are the police guard, the Trades Council green ban on any work at the point, and the Maori land dispute which started the whole thing. Joe Hawke may well have been right when he told his supporters this afternoon that today was only the beginning. In Auckland, this is Colin Faslier. So it sounds like um, perhaps the the Crown wasn't quite prepared for what ended up yep, at all. happening post-Takapatafo. Yep. yep, they weren't prepared at all. At all. Um, didn't know what, what they were expecting, but certainly not... Um, a disruptive uh, 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 bunch of court cases or the disruption of the court system. They, they weren't prepared for that. Don't know, don't know why, because with 200, over 200 people um, appearing on the same charges, uh, unless they split it up, see, they weren't ready for that. Um, you know, prepared, they weren't prepared at all. And as we know, the cases ended up getting thrown out in the end, didn't it? Yep, that's right. If if it had carried on, I think um, we'd all still be going to court today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just the, the the sheer volume of um, people going up. I mean, just to process uh, 222 people, if you imagine fingerprinting everybody's hands of 222 people, that takes a long time. It does. So thirty years later, Tingi, what what are your? How did Takaparafo affect you? Well, when I went up on the twenty fifth of May this year, um, it it felt like thirty years, <laughs> um, and I, I say that because all the children, well, they weren't children anymore; they're adults. Mm. That that's how the most I could tell how much time passed. Um, as well as the older looking faces and things like that, you know, uh, brother Tim Shadbolt there and grey haired, um, Dun Mihaka and all the rest. Um, I think the only one missing of 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 note would have been Tamaiti and perhaps um, Sid Jackson, um, you know, who who isn't here anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for me it, it was by the children. Uh, you know they're a lot older. Even even the Hawk children. Um, I know Sharon. Well, she would have been about fifteen, sixteen. But you know I've seen her over the years. But the other Hawk children. Um, gee, they're all men and women now. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> they all got mokopuna. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, you know, um, that, that's how I tell it. Otherwise, it, it was no different from, from that day in 1978. The, the, the land is beautiful. The scenery is beautiful. Um, you know, the whole area. Well, give thanks that, that um, we did do something about, about that. Otherwise, we, there'd be high rises and, you know, um, ugly buildings up there. Mm. <laughs> Whereas now it, it's, you know, open to the public. Anybody can go up there and, and you know, it's for Auckland. <laughs> yeah. And, and the good thing is it's in um, the rightful owner's control and they haven't built um, um, high rises and multi million dollar complexes up there, you know. And they never will. Well, it's, it, whatever they do, it's up to them. Mm. And I, I think they never will myself. They, they realise what a beautiful place it is, and rather than put that kind of value on it, then you know they've put a value on it where the whole of of the country can enjoy that place. And how do you think May the twenty fifth, nineteen seventy eight, affected Aotearoa? I think it, it was taken badly in a way back then by the general public because of the involvement of protest and the involvement of army and police to remove protesters and things like that. It brought um, a lot of the race issues and the land issues to a head, but the fact that it was a righteous um, protest and, you know, the, all the, the legal um, aspects to it was that um, the Ngāti Whātua people had their land um, uh, ripped off and it was about to be um, ripped off even more um, if, uh, um, you know, they weren't able to stop it. So um, for the whole country, I think it, it was a kind of negative um, um, aspect. But today, when we look at it, it, that negative has turned into a positive feeling. Kia ora. And we had a series of archival material there from Radio New Zealand, which is at our website. It's all available for listening. We have one of the mukapuna next, Tingilo spoke of, that has inherited the legacy of Takaparafo. You heard from her mother earlier, Patu, a nei te reo, a precious clerk. Ihoi mai a kutu whuna marunga i te wako mahuhu o te rangi, ko wai te mata te moana, ko maina kia kia te maina, ko ngāti whātua tō kuiwi, ko... Te tau ngā oho te ringitū o kuhapu, uh, kua hau te mokopuna iruini rawa ko Pipi Hawk, ko Patu Clark rawa ko Nobby Clark o kumātua, ko Precious Clark tō kuingwa. Kia ora. Precious, how did you get your name? I don't know that many people can have a story to tell about their conception, but I do, although I won't share that with the New Zealand public. Um, but I was conceived during the occupation of Bastion Point, um, so my parents were up there during the struggle, during the occupation, I was conceived. And then when I was born, prior to being born, the story goes that my grandfather would call me precious while I was in the womb. And then when I was born, I was kind of nameless, but my koko insisted on calling me precious. And then 17 days after I was born, my cousin Joanne, who was also up at the occupation, Unfortunately, she died in a fire that was held up at Bastion Point. And so I was given the name Precious Joanie in her memory. So I guess I hold the memory of Joanie alive. 
Gee, that's some legacy there, Precious, because your mother is a, um, a sister to Joe Hawke. She's the elder sister. So you've lived with the legacy of Takaparafo Bastion Point your whole life? I guess we all have, yeah, definitely. And what has that meant for you? Mostly pride, I guess. Um, I'm quite quite fortunate in the sense that because of the stand that my family took and um, the strength that they had, it's given me a really good foundation to be able to do a lot of wonderful things, knowing that um, I have my land, I have my identity, and I have my culture, which is very strong within me. And from that foundation, I've been able to be fortunate. I've been fortunate enough to be able to come to London and do some really amazing things over here, um, cultural-wise. So. I've been fortunate enough to go to a number of the different World War One and Two graveyards and participate in events there as part of um, as part of the New Zealand. I guess kind of been like a New Zealand ambassador and ensuring that the cultural aspect of those events are taken good care of, and it's because of the foundation that my family has set for me, and and not just my Hawke family but also my Ngāti Whātua family. Um, it's because of that, that foundation and that strength that I've been able to do these these wonderful things. Um, and I think it just gives a real sense of pride when you know that that your family has stood strong for something that they firmly believe in, for something that they believe was right by their tupuna and also right by the whakatipuranga, the generation that is yet to come. And I guess at the time I fit within the generation that was yet to come and I can only say that they were correct in their judgment. Because I know during the time of the occupation that um, the phrase was kiato te rangi Māori. Now, yeah. as the mokopuna of that generation, have you found it easy or difficult to maintain that? <laughs> Both. Easy sometimes and difficult all the time. <laughs> Um, and but, but one thing I must must um, acknowledge is the leadership that occurred during the occupation. Regardless of what you thought of the occupation, regardless of which side of the fence you stood on, um, when you have such a large group of people who have all have different backgrounds, you know, you had people who were labelled communists. You had gang members, you had priests, you had families, you had just your Joe Blog working man, working woman, you had children. Um, you had all of these different, an eclectic mix of people who came together to believe in a kaupapa, and the kaupapa was that having the land taken away was an injustice and it was wrong. But the leadership insisted that it had to be a peaceful protest. And also must acknowledge that it's not something that was developed at Takaparafa, it was also something that was used in Taranaki no. by Tohu and Tifiti. And so these are teachings that are not foreign within our culture, but they are unique when you're in the face of such adversity and such force. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the likes of Gandhi, who also followed Tifiti and Tohu, and, and his message reached international acclaim. Um, but coming back to the leadership, so regardless of which side of the fence you're on, I feel you, you've got to admire the leadership 
for being able to promote and motivate a message of peace amongst such an eclectic group. Um, and I just, you know, I really wish I could have been an adult and sit back and watch my Uncle Joe when he spoke and my grandparents and my Uncle Grant to see how they motivated people to believe so firmly in their kaupapa and when they were being dragged away by the police, they still held strong to their kaupapa. And so in that regard, you know, it's, it's a legacy that I can be extremely, extremely proud of. But at the same time, you know, you have to have fire in your puku to mm. be able to stand up there and and take such a strong position. And so I definitely have the fire in my puku. <laughs> I'm one of those kind of people. <laughs> you know, there was also a backlash that was experienced, Nida. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I guess a recent story I was told I was when I was back in New Zealand for my cousin's wedding, um, a story was told to me by one of my cousins, and he wasn't born during the occupation, but he had just got a new job, and he had met up with, um, he met with a man who also shared the name Hawk, and this man lived in the Glen Innes area during the occupation, but he wasn't one of our Hawk relations. And he said to my cousin, oh, are you a hawk from Orake? And my cousin said, yes, I am. And he said that for oh, just about every day during the occupation, he received aggressive phone calls from random people telling them to get off the, get off the land or that they wanted to kill him. You know, just really crazy messages of hate mm. that were directed at this guy who had nothing to do with it except shared the same surname that we did. And I think that's an indication of where our society was at at the time. Um, and I certainly hope that as a result of the commemoration that occurred on May 25th, some of those rifts within our society have resolved. I, I, I hope so, you know, that that's what you hope. You can only hope for, for peace and goodwill amongst the New Zealand society, I guess, and, and sharing and understanding. So by the time you were growing up, were you feeling any of that backlash yourself? I think the ch- time the tide was changing when I was when I was growing up. Um, certainly, you have some people who still consider that it was the wrong move to take, and there was great loss as well as great um, triumph that came with the occupation. Um, but I guess again, I go back to the strength of my family and. And the absolute belief that the position that we took was right for us by our tifuna and also by the descendants that were yet to come. So I was probably too proud to notice. <laughs> you featured in a documentary uh, called Bastion Point, The Untold Story in 1998. And at that time you were talking about how you were wanting to move into um, a legal career. How did that progress? Yeah, well, I graduated with a law and an arts degree in, I think it was 2001. Um, and then I moved to Wellington and I had a number of jobs. I had two jobs there. My first one, I worked at the Ministry of Economic Development and I worked on um, intellectual property issues and trying to establish legal mechanisms that would protect traditional knowledge, or Mātauranga Māori, and then went in to do some other treaty-related work and Māori land rights work at 
Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry. And I would have to say that um, there are two two driving reasons why I went in to do law, and one of them was the injustices that was faced by my people during Bastion Point. Um, my parents brought me up knowing exactly what occurred from from their view within their eyes. Um, but I also, when, when I was at school, I was at Auckland Girls Grammar, and I had... Um, I had an amazing teacher in my who taught me New Zealand history, and her name was Rachel Stotter. And she taught us about New Zealand history dating back from like the land wars in Waitara and and around the Kingitanga and Waikato. And that opened my eyes to see that injustices weren't just served by my family and my Ngāti people and the people who came to Takaparafa, but these injustices stretched way back ever since the arrival of, uh, ever since colonisation started within New Zealand. Um, so that really sparked my interest and again it got that fire in my belly going and and I looked at options where I could go and things that I, were passion- I was passionate about and law was an, an easy course to take really. It was a natural course it's seemed like that was something that I could do that could eventually make a change for for my people. And when I was working in New Zealand, I was quite involved in doing things that were Māori-related. Over in London, obviously, there aren't that many Māori-related issues over here, so <laughs> um, my work is a little bit different, but the training is still very, um, still very good. And do you get homesick? You were, you, were, you were in London when the 30th anniversary happened. Yes, um... Yeah, I was in London for a year and a half and then I returned home for a month But and then I've come back and unfortunately I did miss the commemoration and I so wish I could have been home to be a part of it and, um, and celebrate it and acknowledge all of those people who are no longer with us who gave the energy and their time and their love to our kaupapa to help us get our land back which gave me a great foundation and has helped me with help me understand who I am and give me a very strong identity. So I absolutely wish I was there and I must acknowledge my Uncle Alec who has put a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of work into into making this 30th year anniversary a really important event on the New Zealand map I guess and also for the foresight for making it something that all people um, could share in and participate in, not just something that is um, isolated to Māori or isolated to our family, but it's something that's been shared with everybody. And so I've got to acknowledge him for all of his work as well. But I just wish that I could have been at the Auckland Library and seen all of the different photos and got my mum 30 years younger and <laughs> photos of my grandparents and photos of my older brothers and sisters and my cousins and check out the haircuts and the cool clothes <laughs> and also just to be there on the actual anniversary um, and day and, and share some, I don't know, share some whakaaro, share some thought and understanding with other people as well and I guess be able to stand on my land proudly and breathe in the air and and yeah it would have been really lovely but unfortunately I couldn't make it. 
Precious Clark nor Nazi Fatua. Her uncle, Hor Hepper, Joe Hawke, talks with Colin Feslier, RNZ reporter, on the day of the eviction, 25th of May, 1978. We will build a marae again. On the land? On the land. The government has uh, engineered a horrendous, imbecile act upon the mana of our people. They've desecrated a sacred marae. They have desecrated the place where our baby Joanne rests. They've done all these things. And it can never be understood as long as we live. The, the reasons for why we have been, we have suffered so much when our many hundreds and hundreds of people who are squatting on Crown land unmoved, who have not been threatened with eviction. People pass on, but our home and the land remains. Ko mātā tua te waka, ko mākia o te maunga, ko waiaua te aua, ko mokomoko te tangata, ko kiriratima ahau. Kia ora kiri, and that's another week of Te Ahikā. He mihi māhana ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Kia Patu Clark rāua ko tōna tamahine, a precious kia ora. Kia tangilau nes te matua, kia ora. Ki te whānau kei konei te whare puka puka rātou, ko nga kai waiata, me nga kai rā wikimiki mihini, nga mihi e hoa mā. Hoia nō, kia koe Mike a Sound Archives, e hoa, kia ora. Hei atira wiki i te iwi, mai te ahi kā, kia tātou katoa, maudi ora.